0: the sunday sermons podcast but we begin this morning in a uh, this message this idea is all about peace we're looking again as we as we are with all these these are themes that we think about almost every christmas almost every thanksgiving as we practice advent and other things we remember these ideas but this year we're especially focusing on how do we live these how do we share these not just How do we understand them? How do we think about them? What's some cool new insight into them? How do we feel them inside our hearts more this year? But how do we practice these? How do we give these away? And so as we look at peace this morning, I hope that you see that. I'm going to start where John starts both his gospel and his epistle. He starts with reminding us who Jesus is, that he's bigger than life. He was before the creation of everything else. And also he entered into this life in a tangible way. Uh, There's so much goodness in just that truth. But I want you to notice something else in the middle of that this morning. John writes, We proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. If there was ever anyone who had a personal relationship with Jesus, it was John. He was not only part of the 12 Jesus chose, he was part of the inner circle of three. He was the only of the disciples to actually end up at the foot of the cross while the rest were hiding at the cross as Jesus is dying. He's the one that he put in charge of taking care of his mother. He was tight with Jesus. And if there was ever anybody who ever experienced the fullness of what it's like ...to be tight with Jesus... ...including after Jesus ascended... ...and sent everyone out. It was John. But notice what he's saying here. I'm extending this fellowship out... ...to make our joy complete. Just knowing Jesus is not enough. That was not Jesus's plan. As one who touched him... ...spoke with him... ...ate with him... ...hung out with him... ...constantly was with him... ...I can tell you, John says... He wanted this to spread out. Does that make sense? That's where we start today. We experience peace mostly when we unify and focus on something. This, in, in, in our world today, a lot of times when we think about peace, it's a very individual kind of a concept. Uh, we, we want to feel peace. Maybe we want to eat something, drink something, um, do something so that we feel peace peaceful but true peace usually happens when we are focused on doing something that's actually really good most of the time it's not just escapism it's when you're actually doing something you're focused on something and if we unify and focus on god's will we will experience a clarity and a joy that the rest of the world just does not have access to and that that is this that is the key idea of peace in the scriptures not so much a peaceful feeling not so much something that we can somehow pretend that nothing's wrong in the world when there actually is but something that we can focus on doing something about it together something that it's an experience where we know what's bigger than life what's before creation and what's going to extend beyond the end of this world as we know it we we focus on doing the things he's called us to do. Would you say this out loud with me? And even if you're at home today, would you say this out loud uh, with us? If we unify and focus on God's will, we experience clarity and joy. If you're talking about peace, you probably wouldn't think of a war story, but I do because my brain is weird. And also this is how the scriptural idea of peace works. Let's go to 1 Samuel chapter 17. One of the most well-known stories in the whole Bible. It happened in the Valley of Elah. This is what it looks like today. If you were to go there today, imagine standing on one side of this valley and on the other side, the entire mountain is completely covered with well-armored Philistines. And every morning, here comes a giant of a man down to make fun of you. This is where the battle happened between David and Goliath. I just want to highlight a few things. Anything I'm actually quoting today, just for clarity and simplicity, will come out of the New International. Anything I'm paraphrasing just comes out of me, but I've been praying about this. I hope I get it close. All right? But here comes Goliath. The first thing that he says to them is, why do you come out and line up for battle? Why do you even bother? His first thing is just saying, you guys, there is no point you guys even trying. And he defies the army of Israel. And at the beginning of this experience, at the beginning of this story, it says very clearly that they were dismayed and terrified. Not just the people on the battlefield, but the entire nation was dismayed and terrified. They were giving up. They were done. They had no hope left. They were just afraid. That's all they were experiencing. They weren't expecting God to come through. They weren't really expecting a champion to show up. They were just dismayed and terrified. That was what was defining them as a nation. I think it's very significant that this is one of those moments in the scriptures that 40 shows up. It was 40 days. For 40 days the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. 40 days every morning and every evening, twice a day, 80 of these speeches. And they were doing their job. The speeches were doing their job. And then finally, here comes David on the 40th day. Finally, here comes this one person who like Joshua and Caleb and Noah and some of the other people that we've been looking at their stories in the last several weeks. They remember that when God is in the picture, the odds become obsolete. They're not unaware of the odds, they're not unaware of the danger, they're not they're not idiots, they're not crazy, but they know that God and His plans are bigger than anything that we face ever, good or bad. The things of God are better than the best things we can imagine, and they're bigger and more powerful than the worst things that we ever experience or imagine. And he remembers this. Even as, it says, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David, he looked David over. He despised him. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh and birds to the wild animals. Pretty big taunt. Picture kind of like a professional wrestler. You know how they always have to taunt each other at the beginning? Not a big professional wrestler fan, but if you know anything about it, you know that. So I'm going to get you, Hulk Hogan gonna tear you up you know that that's kind of how Goliath is doing at this moment but I love David he doesn't just say he doesn't say oh no I'm stronger than you he doesn't he does he, he puts the focus on God he says I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied this day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. Not just you're going to give my body to them. I'm going to give your whole army to them. And the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. You're going, I think we've heard this story before. And what in the world does taunting and war have to do with joy and peace? Good questions. I'm going to answer it one more time. We're going to move on. True peace, biblical peace, is based in a unity and a focus on God's will. On a clarity and a joy that only comes when you know that you are betting everything. Betting everything that God is going to come through. That God's purposes and God's strengths are bigger than anything. God makes the odds obsolete. It's not an emotion. But in this moment, I want you to picture this. This whole nation has been defined for over a month now by just fear and terror. And in this moment, when they see David knock him out with a rock, run forward, grab the guy's own sword, kill him with it, and then cut off his head, and then brandish the head up on top of a spear. And if you don't know that story, you haven't read it enough because those are the details. I'm not making this up. All right. When they see this happen out on that battlefield, they go nuts and suddenly they are transformed into a body that is united and ready to go. They're wearing the same armor. They're following the same king. Everything has changed except suddenly their perspective has changed. Suddenly they have a unity and a focus based on God and accomplishing God's will at that moment and boom, they're a completely different group of people. And that's what happens on the other side of a 40 time in Scripture. That's what happens to us when we allow God to transform us. It's what Paul was writing about in Galatians when he said this. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. We had a really great um, staff devotion this week. My dad reminded us that that, that term, clothes, in the original Greek, is kind of, it comes from Greek theater. It means you're wearing a costume or a uniform. You're portraying a part. It's not just you're pretending. It's not hypocrisy. It's not a mask. It's not a, a disguise. It's, it's something you're going, I am going to portray this character today. This is who I am. I'm going to be this. I'm going to tell this story at this moment to the best of my ability. We have clothed ourselves with Christ and there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free. Nor is there male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise Again, this is not something we're pretending. This is something we are. It's something Jesus has done and changed inside of us. And only he can do that. But we choose every day to put on that costume, put on that uniform and portray Jesus to the world or not. That's a choice that we make. Galatians 5, uh, Paul continues to write. He says, serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit to the, what is contrary to the flesh. When I watch movies, one of my favorite things to do is watch the, the behind the scenes stuff and the bloopers and all that. Am I alone in this? Anybody else? That you like like that. I, I love that. And it's so fun to see somebody, you know, it's Captain America. And all of a sudden it's not Captain America. Just one little split second different. It's Chris Evans going, what was my line? There's something weird. And, and, and there's something about that that reminds me of what happens every day when I'm trying to portray Christ. It's people are seeing Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then accidentally for a second they go, oh, no, that was John Pryor. And John Pryor's not near as cool as Jesus. But then I go back and I go, wait, wait, wait. That's not the story I'm trying to tell. That's not who I really am. That's not what I'm really here to do. And I put on Christ again and we go for it again. Are you with me? Does that make sense? And that's what Paul is talking about. It's not pretending. It's not faking. But it's very intentionally telling a story. Very intentionally representing Jesus Christ. Who he is and what he's called us and helped us to become. This is why John said, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. I'm sure there were other things that gave him joy in his life. But there was no greater joy than knowing that the people he was mentoring were actually living out these things that he was teaching them. It's why James said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces produces perseverance. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Again, it's not that it's just so joyful to go through trials. It's not a feeling at all. Joy and peace and these other things are are fruits of the spirit. They're things he produces in us when we ask God for wisdom. When we seek God for his will in the situation. When we knuckle down and we say, it doesn't matter. I'm not being me today. I am portraying Jesus in this world. I'm not just trying to survive this day on the set I am the person in charge of portraying the love of Jesus to the people that are watching this play. We make those choices. And when we do that, in that moment, and that's all we're thinking about, when we're making sure that we're getting it right, we're concentrating on getting it right, we experience a clarity and a joy that the rest of the world just does not have access to. And again, that is peace. Here's a second thing that is peace. If you'd say this out loud with me as well. If we unify and focus on accomplishing God's will... ...righteousness and justice replace division. Let's try that one more time. If we unify and focus on God's will... ...righteousness and justice replace division. Without God, without a focus on His will we're just as easily divided as anybody else the whole world we're never going to 100% agree with everybody 100% of the time that's just a fact period no matter what no matter what's going on in the world good or bad that's just real we have access to a kind of clarity and unity that everybody else doesn't have because there's a truth that's bigger than any of us there are purposes there are there are there are tr- there are There's just stuff that is there that we have that nobody else has. Galatians again. Paul writes The acts of the flesh are obvious sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy. Drunkenness, orgies and the like I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God brothers and sisters a lot of times we're, we're tempted out of compassion to kind of justify some of these on the list especially at the beginning and the end trying to make room for other people that we love we can't do that we've got to say if God says it's wrong, it's wrong. But at the same time, I think one of the biggest tragedies is Christians around the world for a long time have often justified hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy because they think they're right about something and other Christians are wrong about something. And if I'm right and you're wrong, then that gives me the right to do all these things that God calls evil. Right? That's an easy question. No, it does not. If I'm right and you're wrong, that does not give me a right to do things that God calls evil. And if you're right and I'm wrong, that does not give you a right to do things that God calls evil. And God calls all of these things evil. Thank God we have the Holy Spirit as our director in this play or this movie, this story that we're telling together. Thank God He is the one that's producing that fruit in us. But it's not enough to just avoid evil. It's not enough to just reject certain behaviors. All of those things that He asks us to avoid and reject are means to an end because He wants us to experience what's better. He wants us to accomplish what He really had in mind. He wants us to enjoy what He'd really designed... our hearts and our heads and our bodies and our souls... to accomplish and to experience. And we can't do that if we justify anything... and say it's okay because any reason... if God calls it wrong, it's wrong. 1 John 2.29, if you know that He is righteous... you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. One of the great preachers back in the day, I don't think anybody's heard of him for a while, but he has some great books you can still look up. His name was Carl Ketcherside, And he said this, churches don't split over issues. They split because God's people lose their love for one another. And that's true. It doesn't mean the issues don't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't continually seek to try and find out what is true and what is not and embrace the truth and reject the lies. But churches find disunity and the opposite of peace, not because somebody's right and somebody's wrong, but because they lose their love for one another. We've got to keep remembering that together. As a church, we've got to keep remembering that together. And the truth is, very little of what we actually end up fighting about or what we end up having disunity about is actually evil. The only thing we know for sure, scripturally speaking, about most of the things we fight about, that's evil is the way we handle it. If we are handling it with hatred and outbursts of anger and dissensions and all of those things, that is clearly, biblically, unarguably wrong. All the other stuff is stuff we should work out and we need to know the answers to and we need to do our best to fix things when we're wrong. But what's clearly wrong is when we fight each other over them. John makes it clear that Christ's followers love others like Jesus loves them. If you're following along the sermon outline and also the live group questions, they're also available digitally. All of these uh, that I'm barely mentioning at this point, you can go back and read those later. I encourage you to do that. Peter says that we must all be like-minded and sympathetic, compassionate, and humble. He also says this, 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. And again, most of the stuff we fight over isn't actually evil stuff. But even if it is, we're supposed to repay evil with blessing. Right? That's what my Bible says. James, he, he talked about that we can't just listen, we've got to do. That faith without works is dead. I don't think that it's an accident. That his big example of that, that he goes, let me show you what that looks like. Illustration is the things that we say. James chapter 1. Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Again, we're rejecting evil. We're avoiding evil. But we're doing that so that we can get His stuff done. We're changing the world around us. And we're treating each other well in the process. James also says this, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That's a little bit weird. Even Jesus himself says that, you know, a tree by its fruit, right? If you plant apples, you're going to get apples, right? If you, if you plant grapes, you're going to get... Yeah, there we go. You're going to get what you plant. But so how does this work? You sow in peace, you reap righteousness? It's because they're tied together. We only really experience God's version of peace when we're living in righteousness. When we are finding our unity and our purpose and our clarity and our joy in doing what God called us to do, that's when we experience peace. And when we invest in that, we when we invest in righteousness, we experience peace. And when we focus on trying to create peace, and when we focus on trying to share love, trying to share grace, trying to share mercy, trying to be like Jesus to each other. When we focus on this, we reap righteousness. They're not the exact same thing, but they're tied together. That's why they grow on the same tree. James also writes, Therefore, confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. Notice he's saying, I get it. Sometimes you are going to... Hurt each other. You're going to come out of character. You're going to forget your line. You're going to stop being Captain America for a second and be Chris Evans instead. Okay. That's when you confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. You don't just accept, oh, well, I blew it. I'm out. I guess I'm, I'm done. I can't tell this story anymore. You confess it and you get healed and you move on. And the prayer of a righteous person, the prayer of someone who's actually living out God's will, that's what their life is defined by. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. They're experiencing peace. Finally, let's say this one together as well. If we unify and focus on God's will, God expresses his favor in tangible ways. One more time. If we unify and focus on God's will, God expresses his favor in tangible ways. There's a mountain called Mount Sinai. A bunch of good stuff happened on that mountain in the Old Testament. In Exodus 24 and 35, Moses spent 40 days up on that mountain. It happened twice. Both of those times, he was really intimately connected with God. He got clear instructions from God himself... It was such an intense experience. The Bible tells us that his face literally shone when he came back down. He had to wear a veil over his face so that other people could even be in his presence. There was something tangible about that. Joshua, we know uh, from Scripture, also went with him, was there. And there were many other times that that Joshua would hang out with God even after Moses would leave. For some reason, there wasn't a physical glow about Joshua... But his life was even more transformed than Moses' was. And that's why he was the one who got to lead them into the promised land. But his, God's favor on them was tangible. They were changed by their relationship with him. In 1 Kings 19, Elijah spent 40 days fasting and praying on his way while he's hiking and traveling to Mount Sinai. And then on Mount Sinai, he had one of the most intense God moments anybody's ever had. I'm sure you've heard that story. You say God passes by in an earthquake and fire and all these things, but he really senses his presence in a gentle whisper. All of that happened because he'd been seeking God. These 40-day things, it's not all about just 40. That I think there's a reason that number comes back around so many times, but it's not about 40. It's about an intense focus on God himself, an intense focus on getting this stuff done, an intense focus on remembering who we are and what we're about and what's real and what's really true, no matter what else is going on around us. It's why we practice the spiritual disciplines. It's why we fast, why we pray, why we meditate, why we get alone, why we do silence and solitude, and why we go through things like Advent and communion and giving and all the other things that we do to just habitually, systematically, constantly, relentlessly pursue God and give him a chance to transform us. On the other side of that is real change. On the other side of this, we're different people. Salvation always includes transformation. That's why Isaiah 61, one of the clearest of the Messianic prophecies, proclaims that when the Messiah comes, he's going to bring good news for the poor and the brokenhearted and the prisoners. He's going to trade beauty for ashes, joy for mourning, a garment of praise for a spirit of despair, He's going to give people a double portion, which if you don't know Hebrew culture, that means that's the the firstborn's inheritance. It comes not only with extra stuff, but with a lot more responsibility and authority. He's going to give that instead of disgrace. And he's also going to give people everlasting joy, everlasting justice, and an everlasting covenant relationship with God himself. Instead of being called a bunch of trees that have been burned down, they will be called, he writes, oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. By the way, this is the passage that Jesus read at the end of his 40 days out in the wilderness. He got baptized, the Holy Spirit led him out there to be alone with God some, alone with the devil some, (laughs) He got business taken care of over those 40 days. He shows back up. He goes into the synagogue and he reads that passage, Isaiah 61. And he sits down and says, Today I tell you, this has been fulfilled among you. I am the Messiah, said Jesus. He's saying that's the kind of stuff I'm about. Wherever you see me or my people, you're going to see good news for the poor and the oppressed. You're going to see all these things. You're going to see this kind of tangible change my whole life I've had um, heroes in the faith I think I don't think I'm alone in that I'm sure you guys can think back to people you looked up to Uh, for me my own parents were missionaries and I saw daily them uh, in the good times and the struggles I saw them daily trusting God and him coming through and providing for us and changing lives in in the midst of a bunch of different cultures swarming around together That was cool. I grew up reading a bunch of great books. I've shared some of these with you guys. Some of my heroes were people like Keith Green, the musician, who's a radical Christ follower, as well as an amazing songwriter. A bunch of different people. One of the ones I know that I've shared about several times was a guy named Brother Andrew. He's a guy who's founded the Open Doors Ministries. And he's known, his book is available in our church library. You can check it out anytime. He's known as God's Smuggler, but during the Cold War, he relentlessly smuggled countless Bibles and other Christian uh, literature into communist countries. Risked his life, and his whole team worked together on this. But they, they would started out; he just used that Volkswagen. They put custom. Custom um, panels in it and stuff. At first they tried to be all secretive. And after a while he realized, God is blessing me. This makes no sense. But wherever God is involved, uh, the odds don't matter. So they would literally just stack the Bibles up in there. You could look in and see they were Bibles. And he'd just pray as he'd go up to the border and say, God, you made seeing eyes blind. Make seeing eyes, I'm sorry, yeah, you made blind eyes see. I got that backwards. You made blind eyes see, make seeing eyes blind. And they'd look in the windows and they'd say, go ahead. He never once got caught. I, I really looked up to that. But I want you to know if you read his whole story, it took a long time for him to become that person. There were a lot of baby steps before he did that. He, he, a big part of his story, if you read the book, probably the first third is him running from God and not even wanting to believe there is a God and not even wanting to believe there is such a thing as miraculous intervention from God. And he just absolutely doesn't believe any of it. And by the end of it, he, he's, he's this other person. Well, in the middle, there's a choice and God comes through. He trusts enough to obey and God comes through and he goes, huh, wow. Wow. And he tries it again. And God comes through it. he tries it again. And every time he trusts and obeys, God provides and guides him just a little bit more. And little by little, he becomes this hero of mine. Same thing with Corey ten Boom. Grew up reading that story, watching that movie. It's hard to watch. She was the one, her and her family creating what they called the hiding place. It was a little fake room hidden in their secret room in their house. And they used it to, to hide Uh, mostly Jews, a few Christians as well from the Nazis and saved them they had this whole little organization that they put together to funnel them out ways to manipulate the ration system and everything to make sure people still got fed keeping things secret they had this whole little thing eventually they got caught her and her family got taken to the same concentration camps that um, all the people they were trying to save uh, would have been heading to all of her family except her got killed In those concentration camps. But she went on to be someone who went around and spent the rest of her life talking about forgiveness and grace and how God still comes through in the darkest, darkest of times. But if you read her story, it's the same thing. They didn't get there, they didn't get to where they ended up just instantly, there were baby steps. They took a choice, one small choice, and they trusted it obeyed, and God blessed. And they tried another one and they tried another one. And little by little, they became the really organized people. And it worked really well for a while. They saved a lot of lives. And then when it all fell apart, they stayed faithful. And even as she watched her family die, even as she experienced so many really gruesome, terrible things happening, uh, she still kept trusting God. And eventually on the other side of that, the rest of her life, she lived for decades and decades, had a pretty good life after that, and was able to really bless a bunch of people in so many different ways. How'd she get there? Daily choices. Do you think it was peaceful to approach a communist border with a car full of Bibles? No. But do you think that guy had a clarity and a joy at that moment? Yep. Yep. Because he knew even if they killed him at that moment, he knew exactly that he was right where God wanted him. Do you think it was peaceful to hide people in a secret room in your house and know that at any given moment the Nazis could come in and get all of you? It's not a peaceful, easy feeling. It's not fun. Do you think they had clarity? Do you think they had joy? Do you think they knew that even if everything fell apart, and even after it did, that God was still in control? Yeah. And they learn that by making little choices day after day after day in that direction. And brothers and sisters, that's where we're wrapping up today. That's exactly what I'm asking you to do today. I'm asking you to take one step in that direction. Lay something that you're scared of at His feet. Lay something that you know that He's calling you to do, to actually get done. Say, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to start today. Will your fears go away? No. Will you instantly just feel this overwhelming, warm sensation of peace? No. But you will feel clarity. You will feel joy. You will have the support of all of us, the Holy Spirit who's directing you as you're finally putting on that costume and saying, absolutely, this is who I am, but I'm going to play this part. I'm going to be Jesus now. I'm going to be Jesus today. I'm going to reach out to my brothers and sisters more than I ever have. I'm going to reach out beyond this family and bring more people in. Our fellowship is going to be complete because we're going to share that joy. We're going to share that peace. We're going to create the peace we crave in this world. We're not going to wait on it to come to us. Whatever God is telling you this morning, I want you to pray this prayer. Lord, I will do that. Maybe that means giving your life to Jesus for the first time. Maybe there's some other tangible thing that he's calling you to do this morning. I invite you to do that. We have people that are available. They would love to just pray with you. If you don't want to come forward, go to the back of the room. If you want to come forward, awesome. We'll all share that with you. But I'm asking every single one of you to stand and make a choice and make a step in the direction. Take one of those baby steps like these heroes I've just talked about. Take some baby steps. Take one this morning and say, God, I am going to trust you. I'm going to expect that clarity and that joy and that unity that comes when we all do that together. I'm going to expect to experience that no matter what. Even if the battle rages on, even if not everybody around me gets it, I'm going to take that step and I'm going to get it done. When we trust and obey, God guides and provides. Experience that, I dare you, this morning.
1: The number 40 appears over a hundred times in scripture, and it almost always relates to a time of trial and testing. The flood took 40 days and nights. The Israelites wandered for 40 years. Even Jesus took 40 days to establish himself after he was baptized. In the Bible, 40 represents struggle, self-examination, and transition, but it always ends in some kind of new life, growth, or beginning. In light of everything going on in the world, it has become clear to us that we are in such a season right now. So as this year comes to a close, let's take this time of struggle seriously. Examine yourself. Allow God to shape your heart. These 40 days will be over before you know it, and we can't wait to see what God does next.